it's one thing to get the one-off photo that's really good, but Instagram is like cookie monster of images, right? Like it just keeps eating content. And so to fuel that engine, you need a lot of very good, consistent imagery of, of high quality to do that. So it becomes a lot harder. Adam, we may have to uh, license this from the children's television workshop. We have to pay royalties for the show. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, Instagram is the cookie monster of content. And our, our special guest this week on the show, Jill Pater, an author, creative director, photographer, uh, talks a lot about sort of the, the balance between quote unquote professional photography uh, and Instagram photography and, and, and how all those things have changed. It's Jill is such a creative powerhouse. It was great to have her on the show and her perspective on all this as a professional photographer, among other things, you know, the importance of great creative content, great photographic content, especially on social channels like Instagram. But I loved her, uh, her insights on how kind of, you know, more photographers, both amateur and professional, has kind of raised all boats in the harbor in terms of quality, kind of like we heard from Amria last week, but even more kind of specific skills and recommendations on how we can leverage that as social professionals and as creative professionals. And Jill's new book, Getting Ahead, is all about how to stay creative, stay inspired as, as a creative professional, which, of course, all of our listeners are. The book is fantastic. You want to pick up a copy of that as well. Really interesting, a wide-ranging episode this week with Jill Pater. Before uh, Jill comes on the show, remind you of our fantastic benefactors here at Social Pros. Of course, Salesforce Marketing Cloud. If you haven't had a chance to look at the new social studio that Adam's team puts together, go check that out. Also, make sure you go to this URL. As soon as the show's over, bit.ly slash J says, bit.ly slash J-A-Y-S-A-Y-S. What will you find there? Great question. Oh. You will find there research that you can download at no cost at no cost called The State of Marketing Report, which is produced by Salesforce. And it is an interview series, a research project of 4,100 marketers from all around the world, asking them about what really matters in marketing today. Artificial intelligence, how the role of social is changing, the impact of customer experience on marketing, and a lot more. Grab that at bit.ly slash Jay says. The show this week is also brought to you by our friends at Emma, an email marketing platform that gives you all the tools you need to send campaigns that really resonate with subscribers. Uh, Emma really puts their customers first. Terrific support team over at Emma HQ. You can get them on the phone. They will actually help you make your email better, which is terrific. Uh, they offer really intuitive tools as well to automate your emails and, and sort of take your email game to the next level. So if you're in charge of email in your organization, including social, which could very well be the case, and or if you're at least friends with the email person in your organization, send them to this URL. Are you ready? It is my, my, man, Adam's ready. It's myemma.com, myemma.com slash J is awesome. MyEmma.com slash J is awesome. As I always say here in the show, I did not come up with the URL, but I will take it. MyEmma.com, J is awesome. Thanks as always to Emma for sponsoring the show. So let's hear from Jill Hater this week on the Social Pros Podcast. Welcome to Social Pros. This is the episode with the one, the only, the multi-talented and fascinating Jill Pater. She is an author. She is a photographer. She is a creative director. She is the author specifically of 21 books, including her newest, Getting Ahead. 21 books, Getting Ahead, The Creative's Guide to Staying Inspired and Doing the Work You Love. Jill Pater, welcome to Social Pros. Thank you so much for having me. 
So Jill, your background uh, is in photography. Many of your books are, are in the photographic realm, mostly architectural photography. We'll talk about that a little bit. But this book is not about architectural photography. This book is about uh, keeping yourself inspired and sort of juiced up as a creative, which you are certainly a creative person. Many of the folks who listen to Social Pros uh, are, are creatives as well, at least in part. Uh, why did you decide to, to write this book? Were you feeling uninspired and then motivated yourself and wanted to tell the tale or for some other reason? A couple of different reasons. This is my first book without pictures, so it was indeed a challenge. Um, but I teach and I, I consult for photography education at the University of the Arts in the London. And the question I would always get from, from the graduate students and just from friends and other people entering the field is, what do I need to know? And, you know, what do I, do, what do I need to know to get ahead? And what do I need to do? Um, so the, the core of the content really came from that, but it also came from being a part of many math mastermind groups with creatives over the years. And what I found is that these kind of founding principles are the same as when you're starting out as they are now. And so I really wanted to put that framework around it and, and help other people to the extent that I can with it. And they're very much principles that I, I still work with and have my struggles with on a daily basis. So it is a, it is a tale of trial and error to a large extent. You're, you're living your own advice, which is certainly yes. the, the best kind of advice to give. Uh, how do you believe, and maybe this is an impossible question for you to answer because you are so wildly creative. I mean, you had a Fulbright grant for architectural photography, which is no joke. Um, how does staying inspired and motivated differ for somebody who is creative versus somebody who is less creative or does it? I think it does differ because for creatives, it's not just a luxury, it's a necessity. To do what you do at the level you're doing it at, you need to be inspired. People are coming to you for your creativity, which is ultimately you're, you're coming from a higher level of energy. And so if you're not there, you, you just don't have the goods to give. Do you think that creativity comes from from surroundings? Certainly, you are uh, you are, are probably the most traveled person that I personally know. Uh, how many countries have you been to now by yourself, Jill? Uh, one hundred and nine. 109 wow. countries as a solo female traveler, uh, which is truly extraordinary. Do you believe then that inspiration, at least in part, comes from being in different places or and or from being around interesting and different people? I think, you know, it's traveling certainly doesn't hurt. I don't think it has to be something that, you know, expensive or involved. It can be simple things. It can be as easy as just taking the afternoon off and doing something you love, whether it's watching sports, going shopping, going to an art museum. Um, it's just kind of reconnecting with your, you know, raison d'etre, so to speak. Jill, this uh, this book, Getting Ahead, The Creative's Guide to Staying Inspired and Doing the Work That You Love is is, is fantastic, as, as Jay said. Congratulations on it. And uh, as a creative person, I think it, it really resonated with me, but I also believe that some of these tenets and recommendations are, uh, are applicable to just about anybody. And again, I think many of our uh, listeners would consider themselves creative professionals. There were a few sections that, that really resonated in me, and I think they're things that we need to be reminded of. The, uh, the chapters and the sections that, that resonate with me that I'd love to get your thoughts on a little bit further were, number one, this idea of investing in yourself. Because mm -hmm. I think so often we as, as, com as, as communicators, as practitioners, don't, don't do that and don't kind of mark, market ourselves well. And the second was this idea of routine. 
which again is kind of goes against what we as creative people may think initially that we're supposed to be about. Could you talk a little bit about routine and, and the idea of investment? Sure. Um, investing in yourself first, I think, is important. Oftentimes, when we're starting a business, we may not have all the capital that we want to have or all the things. But really, again, we're the asset. And it's important to protect the crown jewels and get the things that we need to get ourselves out in the world. And for most people, whether you're in a service-based business or product-based business, that is going to require an investment either in education and marketing and social media and, and just creating kind of the foundation that allows your product and business to be shared with the rest of the world. Um, in terms of creating a routine for success, as you mentioned, it is a bit counterintuitive, right? Like, didn't we become creative so that we didn't have to have a routine? Um, but in my research of highly productive people, artists, creatives over time. And a lot of the research comes from an author by the name of Mason Curry, who studied the top artists, uh, philosophers, writers over the last several centuries. And he found that the most uh, productive and successful had very specific routines. And I think what happens is that with routine, when we develop a routine for something, we train our brain to fire on the cylinders we need it to fire. And it actually allows us to do our work in less time. So with that discipline comes freedom, freedom to do other things besides work. I, I love how you, you articulated that. And, and I think you're right. So many of us as creative people, we, we don't like routine. And I think probably, and this, this is another topic that you speak about in the book around procrastination. I think we, are, we kind of over-index on the procrastination. And sometimes I know I at least perceive that I'm going to come up with my best ideas when I'm in a crunch time, when it's bottom of the ninth full count and that presentation is due tomorrow that I quite frankly probably should have started working on two weeks ago. Talk about that that intersection of procrastination. And you also talk about the evils of procrastination and perfectionism. Uh, that, that was another interesting topic from the book. Yes, their their procrastination and perfectionism are are evil twins, and they lurk in the corner of fear and uncertainty. Um, perfectionism is is a real challenge for a lot of people. They don't want to put anything out into the world until it's perfect. The problem with that theory is that you can't actually have something perfect until it's been out in the the world and you've had a chance to refine it. It's not something you can just create in your head and, and perfect in your head. It has to be alive and interactive in the world. Procrastination comes because we just think, oh, well, you know, I have, you know, 5,000 words I'm supposed to write today. I'll just do it tomorrow. I don't really feel like it. I, you know, I'm going to go to the bar for tequila or something. Um, but what happens you is... Yeah. <laughs> Sit down, <laughs> we, Jay. We keep putting it off. And by the time, you know, with procrastination, you've put it off so many times that had you, had you just done it, you would have saved yourself hundreds of hours but in just anxiety from not doing it. Um, and it's, it's also a gentle reminder that someday is not a day, you know, it has to be in the calendar and it has to be on the books. Otherwise you're not going to do it. And once you train yourself with, with a little bit of discipline around getting things done that you've promised yourself that you would get done, it becomes a lot easier. Do you find it, Jill, to be more difficult, and perhaps not in your case because you've been doing it forever and you sort of mastered it, but do you find it more difficult for people who are living either fully or partially that digital nomad lifestyle so they uh, they don't necessarily have a, a static or stable uh, place of work and, and their hours or kind of when they want to work? Does, does that make it more difficult to A, be inspired or, or B, have that kind of, uh, of discipline and sort of execution and focus because every day is a totally different day. 
I think it can. I mean, I think the nomad lifestyle is probably a little bit more inspired in that you're not so structured, uh, but I think it can make it more difficult to create that routine if you're a little bit laissez-faire on when things are going to actually happen. I think if you can even carve out, you know, and Tim Ferriss is a big proponent of this, you know, a couple hours a day or, you know, getting the most difficult things done first in your schedule, if you commit to a certain amount of something, you're going to get more done than, than leaving it as an open book. You have been traveling while working forever, um, pretty much your entire career. Do you have some tips for, for our audience, some of whom have to travel as well and still have to manage the Facebook page and, and you know, create Instagram ads and, and respond to reviews while they're on the road? What, what can you tell them about making sure that those things get done and doesn't drive them crazy? I think the biggest thing, especially if you're traveling in more remote areas where you might not have the best Wi-Fi access, although that's uh, less and less of a problem these days, unfortunately, I think it's just picking a time to do it, like picking certain times of day to check in and not being on it all the time, uh, because it can be frustrating, again, especially if you don't have uh, the technology to do get what you get done what you need to get done. So picking a couple times a day that you focus on it, usually either the very beginning of the day or the very end of the day. And hopefully you can, that buys you some time if you're in a different time zone. Um, that way you're not thinking about it all day long. You don't want to be super interrupted doing what you're meant to be doing on the trip. Um, but that way you can get it done. You have that time earmarked um, and you can just knock it out. Yeah, because you don't want to be like on a safari and you're like, you missed the wildebeest, right? Because you're like responding to somebody's tweet. That's, that's neither inspiring or anything else, right? It's just kind of pathetic, right? This is the reality of our world today. It's not fair to the wildebeest either. It's not fair to the wildebeest. It, it's, it's not. not. It's really not. Nobody wins in that scenario. Um, Jill, as a, as a professional photographer for, for a long time, uh, certainly you are very familiar with the rise of prosumer and amateur photography and, and now with Instagram and other apps, everybody uh, is at least pretend good at photography. Uh, how has the business of photography or the art of photography been impacted or affected by sort of the social photography trend that of course is, is never going away now? Well, and so, some people would argue that in, in a lot of ways it's been decimated because people's, you know, standards have been lowered. And it, additionally, when Instagram was in its more nascent years, anything went on Instagram in terms of, inter, of in terms of energy imagery quality. So it was almost like from an ad agency standpoint, the worse the imagery, the better. It, it represented social media if it was bad, if it was gritty, if it was like grungy, shabby chic. Um, but that's changed so much. Instagram has really grown up. And I think one of the reasons why it's beat Facebook for a lot of reasons is the image quality is higher and the interface is a lot cleaner. People can really blow through that feed fast. I know I do. And you like what you see. It's, a, it's much more visual and less textual than some of the other mediums. And so I think the pendulum has finally swung back towards this editorial advertising, higher sheen, glossier look. Um, and I think for a lot of brands and marketers, it's a lost opportunity to not take advantage of that platform in that way. Like just photograph, you know, the days of photographing your lunch and slapping it up are kind of over. Like you really need a strategy, an editorial plan and high quality assets. 
It's funny to say that last week on the show, we had Amrita Gurney, who's the VP marketing at CrowdRiff, which is a, a UGC platform that identifies and gathers photos for travel and tourism organizations, state tourism boards, hotels, et cetera. But she said the exact same thing, Jill, that, that if you look in their database of millions of photos and, and you look at sort of the average, there is no such thing, but, but the uh, theoretically average kind of photo quality on Instagram from two, three, five years ago versus today, right? It's like, this is sketchy and bad compared to today where, you know, for, for, for most people who are fairly serious about the platform and certainly uh, our listeners are, they wouldn't be listening to this show, presumably, uh, you know, you're not going to post something to Instagram unless it's pretty good, which is how you see people in the wild, you know, taking 25 attempts at a selfie, right? I mean, it's, it's right. gotta be, you know, and you got the whole Insta husband trend, right? Where you've got you know, <laughs> people following around models and just taking photos all day and that's kind of their job. So uh, it is, it is really, really fascinating. Fascinating. As, as somebody who is a writer first, uh, I look at it and say, wow, maybe there's no more place for words in the world. As somebody who is a photographer like you, a, a quote unquote real photographer, it's got to be really strange that like now everybody thinks they can do your job. It was at first. I think they're realizing that it's a lot more difficult, you know, than it actually is. And I, I know this primarily from teaching photographers teaching people to start out because they think why you know this isn't that difficult but it actually when you're trying to effectuate an outcome it becomes a lot more complicated than it seems and certainly for creative direction right it's one thing to get the one-off photo that's really good but Instagram is like cookie monster of images right like it just keeps eating content and so to fuel that engine you need a lot of very good consistent imagery of, of high quality to do that so it becomes a lot harder and, and harder because it also has to be unlike advertising, which could just be like glossy and, and well done. It also has to have a sense of authenticity and timeliness to it. It has to do all of those things. It has to inform, entertain and inspire. And, and that's a lot to ask if you're posting, especially more than once a day. I'm curious, kind of as, as you just spoke about that, Jill, the Instagram generation and the preponderance of, of more good quality photography content on Instagram and social channels has changed how you've instructed it. Have you seen students come in for, uh, for your photography classes with a different skill set? Do you have to unlearn different attributes? Do you have to relearn? What, what, is, what is kind of instructing professional photographers today look like as compared to maybe four or five years ago? Well, interestingly enough, a lot of the students who come into photography still love the old school you know, film, the silver technologies. And so they're learning it from that standpoint forward. And they're kind of like going old school to new school. For Instagram, the biggest thing is working with square format, which was also an old format, you medium know, format, old, yeah. medium format, the old Hasselblads. Um, so it's teaching them to work with that. The, the other big thing is, you know, your real estate is so small. So the subject in your image needs to be a lot more prominent. And your coloration, you know, you have to think about, you know, how it appears, not just in the feed itself, but in your history, you're working in blocks of, you know, nine images that people see together. Uh, but I think it's funny because students largely, you know, they're, they're much more into the film. They love like the grittiness and the, the old school aspects of photography. And then uh, I, I think it's more kind of the consumers that getting into Instagram that just that, that want to play with it only in that format. But the challenge with photography is you really have to understand it from its base, I think, to, to do well and progress with it. You need to understand the old technologies because that's what created digital. It's still based on that system. It didn't really redefine itself. 
And, and that's kind of something I wanted to ask my, my next question around. I want to get back to your book, Getting Ahead, The Creative's Guide to Staying Inspired and Doing the Work That You Love. Jill, the interesting thing, at least for me, about photography, and I consider myself an amateur photographer, is that it's, around, it's about art and science. It's right brain and left brain. You've got to have that creative eye. You've got to be able to know about composition and color and all the things that, that you would think are creative, but you also got to have some analytical and, as you said, kind of scientific type uh, knowledge and insights. I'm curious how those kind of come together and kind of where you look at, at photography in terms of it being purely a creative discipline or a scientific discipline or, or where you put that line in the sand? I feel like I would say it's 80% creative and maybe 20% technical. I mean, nowadays, most people have, most professional photographers of a higher level would work with a post-production person that's kind of on the more technical side to do higher end retouching and things of that like. Um, I think a lot of photography is native. It's what you see. It's the reason why if you go out and buy a $10,000 digital camera, you don't automatically take good pictures. Right. It's, it's, it's knowing how... It, it, it's what you see, how you see it, and your ability to consistently produce, right? It's not just about the one-off picture where you got lucky and the sun was in the right way. It's how you light, how you see things. Um, so I think it's very much creative. And you, you do start to see the world through those lenses. Um, and you, you, it, that really amps your ability, I think, to, to keep creating and being surrounded by great imagery and, and people who are technically astute. You know, Jill, rightly or wrongly today, I think some people get inspiration from results, even at the individual piece of content level. So somebody posts a picture on Instagram and they get a disproportionate number of likes and a disproportionate number of comments and they're all pumped up and yeah, I'm killing it. And that actually is nutrition for them, at least psychologically, that is inspiration. I'm curious what you choose to share in social media as Jill Pater, uh, photographer, author, uh, creative director, because you have presumably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of images at your disposal, uh, but you're very selective about what you share publicly. And, and is that because you're holding things back for books or you're just like, you know what, that's not the right venue for that kind of work? I do feel like I hold back a little bit because I have the challenges. I have so many different projects. And if I was just constantly putting out random stuff, it doesn't really go that well together. I think, um, you know, going back to having a strategy, viewers want to see something relatively consistent from you to the extent that you can provide that. And so for me, it's really travel images that tends to be what do the best. You know, people want to see places. They want to be, you know, inspired by that type of uh, imagery. It also goes along with a podcast that I have. So that tends to be kind of my go-to place and architecture as well, um, you know, in things in a design vein, things that are creatively kind of photographed in a similar style. As somebody who has authored so many books, certainly part of the book sales process, as, as I'm familiar with, is, is using social media to make sure people know about the book and buy the book and those kind of things. Uh, how has your use of social to promote books and book launches and those kind of things changed uh, since you got started. 
It, you know, it was interesting with my first, uh, my first memoir book was just really the first book that was available to the mass public. Most of my other books are limited edition and then there's a digital version, but it's, it's for a more segmented audience. But for my last two, Carry On Only, which is a travel memoir in this one, Getting Ahead, I use social media a lot to just put out, you know, different posts, different excerpts of the book to get people kind of engaged with the content and see if it's a fit for them. Also to get out some of the imagery around the book. Um, and that, that did pretty well, but I found that what really worked the best was getting actual traditional media placements and having them, having them posted on their social media and then having, you know, kind of getting the followers in return. And with Carry On Only, the travel memoir, um, I learned a pretty big lesson that way because, you know, as I was putting out things to my media outlets, working with photo editors that I've worked with for a long time saying, hey, I have all this travel content. I have, you know, these stories. I have basically everything you'd want for an article, high-end imagery and the writing ready to go. Like, would you be interested in this type of article or this? And what's interesting is they weren't really gravitating so much toward the destination travel spots. What caught their eye was the book's name is Carry On Only, was how to pack. And so Travel and Leisure ran an article on Carry On Only and, and how to pack. And we worked at, we collaborated on that together and it went in 48 hours it went viral i had interviews with cnn with huffington post business insider um london evening standard it just kind of went crazy on the internet and so all those media outlets are, are posting you know their own articles their own interviews and then putting it out on their social and that's what really drove the attention of that book um, with my latest book getting ahead it's actually the amazon analytics which kind of surprised me because i had it out i had some key readers you know purchasing it first just to make sure everything was okay and it actually it actually hit number one even before I had technically released it way just, to go just due to Amazon analytics wow. yeah artificial intelligence as we talked about on yes. the show a few weeks yeah. <laughs> yeah. Adam go ahead I'm curious, you mentioned, Jill, so many of your books were, were photography books, and I'm assuming kind of like, you know, the coffee table book, the beautiful photography books, you know, coming from a, from a family of authors and, and now sitting here with, with two, uh, both recognized authors in your own particular discipline. I'm curious how the, the photography book business has changed. We've certainly seen mainstream business books change, you know, with the, with the evolution of the Kindle and eBooks and things like that with, uh, with fewer bookstores than ever. But I'm curious how the large book, you know, where the, the physical image is so important. It cannot be, you know, easily, you know, attributed to a, to an ebook has changed the way that you've promoted or marketed those books, Joe. Yes. Well, it's a great question because it really has changed a lot. I mean, traditional coffee table books have really plummeted. Sales of those books have plummeted. But the one area of books that has gone up uh, tremendously are limited edition books. So that's really what I focused on getting it. You know, as a photographer, you know, we're super anal about the paper types and the inks and the bindings. And when I set out on this, I just wanted to produce really for myself the best possible book I could. So I found the best archival papers, custom hand stitch binding you know, all, all the bells and whistles and put it out on the limited market. And those do much better, uh, ironically, than the, you know, those sell for $1,200 a book than the book selling at $80, you know, for $80 or, you know, 40 to $80 range that you see um, oftentimes, unfortunately, in the 99 cent 
been at Barnes and Noble. Um, they're they're just not. People don't have the space for them. They everybody I think has enough coffee table books, and so unless it's something they specifically want and feel like it's a piece of art that they're collecting, which is the opportunity that limited edition books give people, um, you know, they're kind of not interested in in stacking their house. And probably some of that's due to Marie Kondo and people getting rid of things. <laughs> <laughs> killing us. She's killing the book market. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it is, it's also interesting, you know, when I went into traditional publishing, because it's kind of old school, right? You know, in, in, in a day and age of social media, to have something physical anymore is kind of, you know, not normal. But what I've found in working with a lot of clients on their book projects is that having that editorial, that highly visual narrative and some textual to go with it, you not only have this book, which is a beautiful asset, it's a beautiful gift for clients, um, something they can't get everywhere, which people love. Um, but you also, we break it up and we, we reformat it for social media and for websites and for all lots of other endeavors. So it ends up for clients, it ends up being, uh, you know, a great way to tell a story and, and disseminate it via multiple platforms. Last question, kind of around the, the, the creative aspect. And, and there are a few things in your book that, again, resonate with me. The idea of, of knowing when to say no, you call it the creative hell no, uh, <laughs> was, was, I think was especially uh, uh, prudent uh, and, and, and prescient. One of the things I was curious, just from, from a personal standpoint, uh, your, your entire kind of career, at least to this point in terms of how I understand it, has been around the still image and not mm-hmm. moving image, not video, not film. I'm curious, is that a creative decision that you've made or you feel more comfortable in that kind of environment or is that something that you're, you're kind of considering as you look towards the future? Did you and your sister just decide to split up media and say, look, you can do stills and I'll do moving. Jill's sister, Christina, is a good friend of mine and actually works at least from time to time on the Convince and Convert team. Uh, and she is a screenwriter uh, for Hollywood films, et cetera, uh, when she's not doing stuff with us. So, so I think that's it, right? You guys just said, look, anything that moves is yours. Anything that doesn't move, I'll just take that. Right. One frame a second, me, you're 24 uh, frames. That's right. right. Yeah, we split it up. Yeah, uh, you get songs, you get poems, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a great question, Adam. I I did experiment with video. I, I you know there was a lot of uh, there's been a lot of times in the past couple of years where people have thought, oh, video is going to overtake stills. You know, for a long time that was this big threat. That never happened. And the reason I love stills is one, they're so fast to consume. And one of the reasons why video I think doesn't do as well on social media unless it's on specifically YouTube, is that it just if it takes more than one second to engage the user, you lose them. And it's much more production intensive. So unless you have the best audio person, the best, you know, all the best tech people, it's really hard to produce on that level. The other big challenge is, you know, as a photographer, I'm in charge, right? I'm in charge of everything. And it's easy to do that when usually when you're in film, you have to work with, you have to, you know, negotiate between the writers, the producers, the directors, and then it, it becomes very difficult to get things done at the rate that I like to do things. So it was a, it, it was something that I had played with, but I really love stills. And I also realized that, you know, video is just a different animal completely. Some people think they're very similar, but, but they're, the nature of them is different. And I think stills, because they're faster to consume, will always kind of outlive video in a lot of ways. 
Joe, one of the things I want to ask you about is this idea of patience. Uh, it's hard to be patient as a social media professional. Everything that you read, everything that you have to do sort of conspires against patience. But as a photographer, especially an architectural photographer, you have to be patient, right? You've got to, you've got to set up the shot just right. You've got to, the right weather, the right lighting, the, the right, a lot of things, right? And, and so how, um, how have you trained yourself to, to be sort of patient enough to wait for the right opportunity? And what advice would you give our listeners uh, in that regard? Well, I'm probably not the best person to ask about patience because I have <laughs> negative patience in a lot of areas. But in some things like photography, like, you know, to your point about waiting for the right shot, the right time, it's that you do have to wait to strike when the iron's hot, right? There is, otherwise, you know, the attempts are kind of futile. So in photography, you know, if you're waiting for light, say for an exterior shot, there's just that perfect time where you're going to get it. And there's no amount of post-production that can really um, create that look. And so it, it, it makes sense. You know, it's worth the wait. You're saying you can't just like apply the Nashville filter on Instagram. You're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I totally got, it. I nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it totally, it, it's close, but not, not quite there. Not quite there. the same. Not okay, quite sure. the same. So, and so you're a photographer. Fine. I, I definitely empathize with, you know, the audience listening who are marketers and have to be on these very ephemeral platforms and constantly feeding them, but they are really long-term games, right? You're building brand awareness over time. And, you know, it's the average, I think there's, oh, there's over 2 billion images shared on social media day globally, and the average consumer sees up to 10,000 ads. So having that consistency and kind of that longer view on things becomes so important if you want to stand out. So I think, you know, it, it's worth the wait, you know, trying things, not getting caught up in so much of the quantity. I mean, obviously you have to be, you know, on these sites to some extent, but not getting so much in the, uh, caught up in the quantity, but more in the quality and the consistency. Even though I know you're sick of talking about it, you got to give us one packing tip. <laughs> Never get sick of talking about packing. <laughs> My favorite packing you know, I mean, tip you is and, just, You and I have been on a couple of trips roll, together. Older roll. <laughs> it, it's all true, though. I, I, Jill has been on a couple of our Convince to Convert annual uh, company retreats. And, and while Jill is not like a double XL like me, so that certainly helps in terms of your packing requirements, uh, it is kind of nuts. Like, like, you know, like the size of like a shoebox and here's all your stuff. I'm like, how do you do that? I think, well, to answer Adam's question as well, I, I definitely roll things. I think it's about, you know, figuring out what you, what you really need. It's always difficult too, if you're on a trip and you need multiple types of outfits, if you're on a business trip and you need, you know, business clothes, you need casual clothes, you need winter plaid clothes, suits. summer plaid suits, right? <laughs> but if you fly first class, you can, you know, there, there are lots of ways of little corners you can stuff those things into. Um, I think it's minimizing it and definitely minimizing the shoes. Um, is a big is a big portion of it, but minimizing things, having things dry clean, buying clothes when you're <laughs> at your location. Um, usually, we just kind of take everything because we don't want to do the edit at home. So taking that extra time to just kind of edit things down and really think about what you're going to wear, um, it, it really saves you the space. Oftentimes, I think people are just you know they're packing in a rush, so they throw everything in you know just in case. But most of those just in case situations never happen. The shoes is a good tip for sure. That, that is, that is definitely uh, the biggest culprit on, on the space. And if you can get by with uh, with the same shoes, uh, you know, you dress them up, dress them down. That's a, that's a good angle. You can also just wear all your clothes on the airplane. <laughs> 
Layer like up on the airplane. <laughs> on the airplane. Right. You heard it here first from uh, from Jill Bader, author of Getting Ahead: The Creative's Guide to Staying Inspired and Doing the Work You Love. Take all the clothes you own, wear them on a plane. So thank you. That's the kind of uh, advice you get on social posts. Jill, we're going to ask you the two questions we've asked every single person here on the show. Uh, now three hundred and I don't know seventy five episodes, something like that. Adam, it's a lot. That's about right. Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, Jill, what one tip, other than wearing all your clothes, would you give people uh, who are looking to become a social pro? I think the biggest thing in today's day and age with social media is really coming up with a strategy, an editorial plan, and investing in high-quality assets. I think it's no longer, uh, especially you know, in reference to Instagram, it's no longer a media where you can kind of you know do it on a day-by-day or even week-by-week schedule. I think having a strategy saves you so much time and effort, and, and also investing in you know creating multiple assets at a singular point makes your life infinitely easier. And I think also that that information has to either inspire, educate, um, or entertain the audience. And if it doesn't do one of those things, ideally it would do all of those things. But if it doesn't do one of those things, it's probably not your, your best foot forward. Yeah, which then hurts you algorithmically, right? If, if it doesn't right. succeed, it actually, it actually fails. There is no such thing as mediocre. Uh, it either helps you algorithmically or definitely hurts you algorithmically. So I agree. If it's, if it's not good, uh, resist the temptation to post it at all, frankly. Jill, this is going to be a good question to you because you've been everywhere. If you could do a video call with one living person, who would it be? It would be, so it's actually tied. It would either be Queen Elizabeth or Queen Rania of Jordan. And I like, I like Queen Rania because she's a contemporary. She's actually very active on social media. And she's somebody who's really out in the world trying to, you know, aggressively advocate for positive social change. So I think she'd be a very interesting person to talk to. Um, and Queen Elizabeth, for obvious reasons, although I'm pretty sure she doesn't do Skype, Skype calls with random Americans. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only one Anything. way to find out. Possible. Anything is possible. <laughs> yeah, just give her a little shout, a little forward in the next book, you know? Yes, I will. To I the will. queen and see, maybe that'll happen. You don't know. What is the next book? What are you working on now? I am working on a top secret project, but I have started. I have started. I started last week. Very exciting. I'm glad to hear mm-hmm. it. I can't wait, can't wait to hear about the top secret project a little bit more. Jill Pater, thank you so much for being on the show. Friends, Jill's most recent book is Getting Ahead. Make sure you look for that. It is terrific. It'll keep you inspired, motivated as you get kind of drugged down by the craziness that is social media. And if you do travel, uh, her book Carry On Only is really terrific. Grab that one as well. And if you likes the photos, as we mentioned, lots and lots of uh, Jill Pater uh, books for photography lovers, especially those of you who like architectural photography, which which is Jill's specialty. Jill, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Adam and Jay. We will see you next time. On behalf of Mr. Adam Brown from Salesforce Marketing Cloud, I am Jay Bear from Convince and Convert. This has been hopefully your favorite podcast in the whole world. Don't forget, you can go to socialpros.com to get transcripts, links, archives, everything going all the way back to the beginning of the show. That's socialpros.com. If you haven't had a chance to leave us a rating, a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google, on Spotify. As mentioned, Adam, a lot more Spotify listeners lately. So, so yeah, it's great. Um, really like to see people using that platform as well. So if you haven't had a chance to leave a rating and a review, man, we'd be so pumped if you did that. That would help us a lot. We will see you next time right here on the Social Pros Podcast. Thanks for listening.